You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. It's good to see you guys tonight. Uh, if you would, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew. It'll be Matthew chapter 6 this evening. Matthew chapter 6. Uh, if you're new with us tonight, my name's Joe. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, make sure that I get a chance to shake your hand before you take off out of here. Um, we are uh, getting ready to dive into week three of our five-week series on money. Um, I know that's a touchy topic. I've been saying this every week for the last couple of weeks. I know um, uh, common uh, conception of the church today is that the church is always after everybody's money, and we've already talked about that a little bit tonight. Brandon did a pretty good job of explaining some of that. Um, we uh, started planting three and a half years ago in my living room. There were six of us, and, uh, and one of the topics we haven't really talked about much in three and a half years was the topic of money. And then uh, kind of looking at the scriptures, we realized that Jesus talked about money quite a bit. And so we just felt like it was important that we go there. Um, also important for the life of our church as we continue to try to be a uh, gospel-centered church family that makes disciples who glorify God, and as we continue to try to run a rescue mission within the yard of hell, those being some of those basic statements of our church, um, one of the things that we realize is that we, we've got to be a church that makes disciples who are given time, talent, and treasure are, and are like all in and invested in the ministry of the gospel so that lost people, unbelievers, people who don't know Jesus have the opportunity to hear the message of the gospel. And so, uh, and, so, and so our hope is that in diving into this study for five weeks and then kind of pairing this preaching series with our gospel communities throughout the week is that we'll just really begin to peel back some of the layers and some of the fig leaves and some of the issues surrounding how we, uh, how we handle our money. Um, we just realized that there, there can be a real strong root of idolatry uh, for us, and that's part of the reason why we are so uncomfortable in talking about it. And, uh, and so we just really want to let God's Word speak. So this is a kind of a ginormous task for me, um, not to draw attention to myself in any way. This is just to draw attention to Jesus, because He does what He does, and uh, His Word is powerful. He speaks through it. It's like a double-edged sword. And, and, and our prayer, our hope really is that, that God's Word would just be really clear, um, to every one of us in, in terms of where we're at and where he wants us to continue growing in how we continue to repent, confess, and those things. And so if you're new with us tonight or if this is only like your second or third time with us, um, uh, typically our, our typical mode of preaching is to uh, move our way through an entire book of the Bible. We've been in a study of the Gospel of Luke uh, for like a year and a half now. I think we were in like Luke chapter 15 when we took a break. And so we just took a break to do this for five weeks, and then here in a couple of weeks we'll be back in the Gospel of Luke again, right around the time that Palm Sunday and Easter hit. And so typically that's our mode, is to work slowly through that. We chose the Gospel of Luke simply so that people could get a fresh perspective on who Jesus is as Luke records his Gospel. And, uh, and so that's why we chose that. We'll be getting back there here in a couple of weeks. Otherwise, this week is week three of our money series. Encourage you if you've missed a couple of those messages to go back, listen to week one and week two. We have some study guides that were generously donated to us by a church in Omaha called Coram Deo Church. Uh, they're part of the same church planting network that we are part of. And, and, and just a quick note on uh, Coram Deo. They, they uh, Bob Thune and their other elders there donated those study guides to us to use in our gospel communities. And I, I just think they've been really fruitful, that study. I know many of us are engaged in that and the conversation has been uh, really good. Sometimes kind of heart-wrenching, kind of force us to be honest about where we're at. 
um, but super good too. And I'm really thankful for Quorumdale and their investment that way. Quorumdale has invested in us many other ways. They've given us, um, they've given us funding to, to help startup costs. They've They've also uh, provided some coaching, as well as Two Pillars Church. The pastor there, Todd Bumgarner, has uh, provided coaching as well over the last year or so. And one of the things that, that, uh, that we're really talking about, uh, the guys that coach me and then some of our leadership here, is we're just talking about what it looks like to see our church become sustainable. Um, uh, because there has to be a place of sustainability where we continue to move forward and continue to grow. And so, uh, and so that's part of this conversation. Please be praying for us, too, as we continue that conversation on what it looks like to be a church family that continues to grow. Um, and so, uh, so that's kind of my little bit to lead us in. Why don't you uh, bow your heads with me? I'm going to open us in prayer. Hey, Father, Lord, we just come before you this evening. Um, Lord, we've got your word open in front of us. And uh, each one of us in this room, I know... Um, we come in here with, uh, with the cares of the world, uh, we come in with uh, weight on our shoulders, we come in with distraction, we come in with worry. We come in with uh, worry about a ton of different things, I'm certain. And so Lord, as we open your word, what we need and, and what, I, what we ask you to do this evening is to, uh, to just give us a fresh perspective not, not really on like practical tips on how to handle the mess of our lives, not really practical tips on how to handle the worry in our lives, but really you paint for us a grand picture of who you are and how to find our rest and our security and our hope in you. God, I pray that you would paint that large picture for us and that you would, that you would effectively take our eyes uh, off of the cares and the worries of the world around us and the worry of life, so to speak, and, and help us just to fixate our eyes and our focus squarely on you. Help us to be people who are uh, maybe uh, seeing ourselves as being pursued by you, the lover of our souls, the one who sent his son to die upon a cross so that our sins could be forgiven so that we could then come into right relationship with you. Lord, help us, help our hearts be open to what you might say through your word this evening. I pray, God, that you would encourage us and just, just paint this big, massive picture of your glory and your grandeur and your, your sustenance for us. Let me just ask this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 tonight. There, there are a number of things that we have a tendency to worry about. Kind of the main topic of our message this evening as we continue this series. There's a lot of things that we have a tendency to worry about. We, we struggle um, with worry often. And I, th- I think that if we could record our conversations or record our thought lives, I think that maybe we would be a surprise at what would be revealed in regards to how often we worry and what we worry about. Some of us probably worry about what we worry about, honestly, if you think about it that way. I think we worry about how much money we'll have left after we get paid. I think we have a tendency sometimes to worry what people might think or say about us. We worry about our health. We worry about our kids, how they will go to college and how they will continue moving through life. We worry about whether or not our vehicles will stay running. We worry about whether we'll be able to pay the bills or the rent next week. We worry about whether we're going to be safe in our homes. We worry about whether terrorists are going to come and kill us tomorrow and take over the country. We worry about whether we're going to have a place to live. We worry about an awful lot of things. There's a lot of things to worry about, I think, in this life. I think we all struggle with worry. 
There's one phrase that I kind of landed on this week in my study that I thought was really interesting, and I want you to hear this. I think it's on the screen. And I want you to think about this for just a minute. Like what we worry about reveals why we worry, and then when we understand what we worry about and why we worry, then we have this opportunity to then no longer worry anymore. How about that? Just think about that for a minute. If you know what it is that you worry about and why you worry about it, then now you have an opportunity to turn away from that worry and no longer worry anymore. I do want to be clear, though. There's many of us that struggle with worry more than other people. And the problem of worry is not just a theological problem alone. It's, it's both a theological, a psychological, and a physiological issue as well. Many different ways we can cope with the issue and the problem of worry. You know, breathing techniques, schedule changes, budget templates, accountability partners, coaching partners, counselors, good sleep, good rest, good food, days off, right? Many of these different um, ways of coping with our worry are good, uh, even good medication, Um, can be good in terms of how to wrestle through worry and anxiety. Be very appropriate. Prayer, prayer can be another very appropriate, highly important piece of what it looks like to become people who are not uh, worrisome or full of anxiety. But my job this evening probably is not to tackle too much of the psychological or physiological sides of that. My, my, My job is to really expound the theological side of worry and what that looks like. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. He says this. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? But the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I want you guys to ask yourself this question. What do I worry about? What do you worry about? What is it that you spend most of your time consumed with being worried about? Like in these opening verses, Jesus uses the word life three different times. You can find those words in the passage. He uses the words life over and over. We worry about our life. The reality is that we worry about our lives, but the problem with our worrying about 
life is that, is that we wind up oftentimes reducing life's worries to merely worrying about physical needs to the neglect of our spiritual needs, spiritual growth. Jesus begins by saying this. He begins by saying, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Maybe to put it a little bit differently, if we were to say this a little bit differently, maybe Jesus was saying something like this. He's saying, hey, based upon what I have just said a few minutes ago, let me say that you have no reason, no need to worry about your life. Now, now, when Jesus says this, I, I kind of read that and, and I kind of have a tendency to, to brush him aside. Because one of the things that probably infuriates me sometimes is when I'm trying to explain why I'm so upset and worried about something and I feel like somebody gives me the cold shoulder. You guys know what that feels like? Like when you got something that's really grating on you and you're trying to explain it, somebody's like, ah, just don't worry about it. God will take care of everything. That have a tendency to drive you crazy. All right, drives me a little bit crazy sometimes. Gets my attention. Jesus, in effect, in this passage is saying this. It starts off with therefore. Whenever we see that word therefore in terms of Bible understanding, we begin to ask, what's it there for? Previously, what Jesus has been doing, so, so therefore is kind of like the word so or for. Okay? Anytime you see those words in literary writing, it gives you, it gives you like, a, uh, like a signpost in the middle of the road to turn around and quit looking ahead and now look back and see what Jesus has just said. Therefore. Jesus said something, and we, we studied it last week, and the big summary, the big overall summary was this. It was that our treasure is whatever we fix our eyes upon, and what we fix our eyes upon, that is what becomes our master. We learned that last week. And so after Jesus teaches through that big principle, he brings that teaching to a close by applying that principle to each one of us by saying that we must make a choice. We're either going to serve God or we're going to serve money. You're going to serve one or the other. Whoever you serve is who you are enslaved to. That is who becomes your master. And we must make that choice. The big topic of what Jesus was talking about last night so or last week. And so in light of or in view of looking back at what Jesus taught us last week about treasuring and fixating our eyes and, and what is it that masters us, what is it that controls us, in light of that teaching, understanding that Jesus taught that, now we look forward to this teaching. And Jesus says, therefore, because I've said this, now let me tell you, don't worry. It's like, oh, okay, I'm starting to connect the dots. And what he's saying is simply this, like, big overview picture is this, that, like, if we serve anything or anyone other than God, we have lots of reason to worry. We have a lot of reason to worry. If you serve God, if he is your master, if he is the one whom you would say you are effectively enslaved to because Jesus has saved you, you have nothing to worry about. Yet, yet, we still struggle with worry, don't we? Don't we? Like, we can say these things all day long and put like big placards over the top of it, but the reality is that every single day, every moment of our lives, many of us, if not all of us in this room, struggle with worry at varying different degrees. The problem of worry still remains. There's one thing that I know for sure. I know for sure, well, I don't know for sure, actually, because only God knows these things, but I would say that I have a suspicion I'm a finite man. I don't know everything, right? So I have a suspicion that when we walk out of here tonight, just hearing this message is not going to fix you. 
And in fact, I think I can say that with pretty much absolute certainty. Just hearing this message will not fix you. The Holy Spirit is powerful in preaching. The Holy Spirit is powerful in his word. And the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants. But primarily at the end of the day, when it comes to this issue of worry deep within our hearts, it's really going to have to just be a work of the Holy Spirit deep within every one of us. This message may help. We all have a long ways to go in terms of worry. The problem of worry remains. We're not going to walk out of here not still worried. We worry about life because we wind up reducing life to physical needs alone. Which then leads Jesus to instruct us in this passage not to worry about our lives, basically in the mere utilitarian sense of the word. He says, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. In other words, Jesus says, don't reduce your life to mere physical, financial needs. Food and clothing are super important, right? They're really important, but if we reduce our lives and our bodies to just the physical needs of food and clothing, then like I said earlier, we, we effectively miss other important needs like showering. And there, there are far other physical needs as well as spiritual needs that we have, and if we reduce things down just to the need of food and clothing, then we become utilitarian only. We reduce ourselves into inanimate utilities like spoons and knives in our kitchen drawers. Life does not consist merely of our physical and financial needs. Life is so much more than just the need for food and clothing. And Jesus uses this illustration of the birds in the air. He says, he says look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I want you to think about the birds for a minute as Jesus turns our attention to the birds in the text. Think about the birds. Birds don't sow or invest anything like we do. Birds don't uh, receive a return or reap a benefit from anything like we do either. They don't gather stuff into barns. They don't put stuff into storage. They don't fill their garages full of stuff. They don't pack food into freezers. They don't even fill refrigerators. They don't have the privilege of looking at God in heaven and calling Him their Father. This is something that is reserved for you and I alone. We get to call Him Father. The truth in this passage that Jesus is trying to get across as he's taking shots at the worry that resides deep within our hearts, this truth is that we are more valuable to God than the animals around us. And if he provides for the animals around us who have not been created in his image, they were not created to look like him. The scriptures are clear that we as humans are created with the image or the likeness of God in us. Not that we are gods, but that we are a reflection of God himself. We're a reflection of his love, his mercy, his grace, his, uh, his perfection. We are, we are reflections of those things the world, we're a reflection of God. It's, though, it's, it's as though God sets us up like mirrors for the world to look at so that they can see the truth of the gospel in us. But animals don't have that. We don't have that. We do, though. God did not send His Son to die on a cross to save animals, so to speak. 
Now, there is some truth if you want to step back and kind of go deeper into some theological understanding and, and think about um, kind of uh, how God uh, and his, his son's death on the cross was meant to make everything right. In a sense, the justification that we see on the cross of Christ, which was meant personally for each one of you and I, as he sovereignly grabs and brings in and then sanctifies changes and all those great big fancy words, yes, yes, it is about making his creation right. Not just humans, but all of creation. At one point, all of creation will be made right. There will be a new heavens and a new earth when everything is set in completion, right? This is when Jesus comes back story of revelation and all those things but the reality is that when jesus came to die on the cross he came to die specifically so that you and i because of our sins could come to god and say i'm trusting by faith in jesus to save me i'm a mess up and i'm not perfect and just because i walk into a church or just because i say yes to jesus one day does not mean that in this place in this space in this time that i'm going to be perfect in front of you i'm going to be a pretty messed up person still in need of Jesus until that day when I walk into heaven. And that's, that's the message of the gospel for every one of us, right? And the reality is that animals and then, and then trees and all the, all the other parts of creation do not have that that we have. We are able to look at God in heaven and say, you are my Father. See, a bird's life does not consist of much more than food, does it? Our lives consist of, of far more than just the need for food. Life does not consist merely of our physical and our financial needs. Jesus also asked this question. He says, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? See, in the original Greek, this phrase, span of life, the third time Jesus is using this word life, think about this. When In the original Greek, when he uses this phrase, span of life, it literally means 18 inches. 18 inches. It's roughly the distance between where you stand right now and the next physical step you will take. You and I have no control over the next step we'll take, but we worry as though we do. We worry as though we think that we can add somehow the next 18-inch step to our lives. We have no control and, and no power our Father in Heaven has that. And that's where, that's where we as Christians are called to place our trust and our hope, is in a Father in Heaven who loves us dearly and deeply. And if you're here and you do not know God and you're just kind of checking Him out and you're like, man, I don't know about the whole God thing. Like religion kind of scares me and churches scare the heck out of me, right? And if that's you, the message, the simple message tonight is that and your, your entire life and your entire being is meant to point towards one thing, and that's God Himself. And the reality is that you, just like me, we've made a mess of our lives. And we have not let our lives look like God. So then God sends His Son, as I said a little bit ago. And it seems like a crazy story that somebody named Jesus, who is God, would come and then give himself as a ransom for other people to buy us back from the penalty of our sin. I mean, the message of Scripture is that it's not just this thing of worry that we have issues with. We have issues all over the place, man. If you could like spend two hours with me, you'll find out that I've got issues everywhere. I'm so much in need of Jesus. I can't fix myself. You can't fix yourself either. No matter how many times we've all tried, we always will find out how hopeless it is to fix ourselves. 
So then the message of the scriptures is simply that because of that mess that we've made and because of our sin, there is a debt to be paid between us and God because he's perfect, he's holy, and we're not. So then he sends his son as an extension of his love for, for every one of us. So then by our faith and our trust in him, he could then be in charge of and be in control of our lives. It's the message of scripture, it's the message of the gospel. When you and I come to that place of hopelessness and helplessness or we realize that there is no way that we can control the next 18 inches of our lives. I have no idea what will happen in the next moment and the next second. I can live my life worrying about it. I can live my life carefree and being irresponsible with it as well. The message of the gospel bids me to come and then lay my life at the feet of a Savior who's given his life for me. It's the greatest picture of generosity in the entire world. I'm convinced that people who call themselves Christians should be the most generous people ever. Why? Why? If we really believe the gospel, if we really believe that our Father in Heaven gave His Son for every one of us and we call ourselves Christian, we should be the most generous people. Because God's given so much for us and we can't outgive Him. You can't outgive him. If you really believe there's a God in heaven, you can't outgive him. No matter how much you mismanage, no matter how much of a mess you've made out of things, you cannot give him. He owns everything. You can't outgive him, right? Now your next step is way out of your control. You and I cannot do anything to ensure what's going to happen in the next moment. See, what we worry about reveals the reasons for our worry, which then gives us this opportunity to stop worrying. Ask yourself this question, though. Why do you worry? Why do you worry? It's not just enough to ask ourselves like what we worry about. We also have to ask ourselves why we worry. And Jesus in this passage is instructing us not to worry, not to be anxious, not to be consumed with wondering what's going to happen in the next moment or the next 18 inches of our lives, right? And we hear Jesus saying not to worry about all the physical things that money can buy, but the problem remains we still worry. We still worry. We do get anxious. Our hearts do get consumed with worrying over the desire to have more financial security and more financial stability. In our minds, we think that we will find more security and more stability in expanding our bank accounts, working more hours, stockpiling more food, and buying more clothing. There's nothing inherently wrong with those things. Nothing wrong with saving money. Nothing wrong with storing up food. Nothing wrong with putting clothes in our closets. Proverbs, if you read the book of Proverbs, even instructs us to save like ants, to store up like an ant would. But Jesus isn't addressing the, the problem of storing up food or the problem of worrying about what money can buy. He's, he's, not, he's, not, uh, he's not wrestling with the issue of putting money in savings or the problem of tithing. It's not really what he's wrestling with here. He's addressing the heart issue of reducing life to mere physical and financial needs. He's wrestling with the issue for us of this perpetual worry over whether or not our lives will count for anything valuable. So we have an issue with assessing the value of our lives by the yardstick of our abilities. We often tend to think that our lives only amount to as much as we are able to produce. 
This is why Jesus asks us in verse 28, like, why are you anxious about clothing? In other words, why do you worry about life as though it revolves only around the things that you can wear? The question Jesus is asking here is meant to get at the issue under the issue, the problem beneath the problem, or the core of our worry. In this case, what we worry about reveals why we worry. As you think about why you worry over those physical and financial needs, as you, as you think about your worry over the physical existence of your life, I want you to listen to what Jesus says. Just consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Flowers do nothing. They don't do anything. Yet they are beautifully clothed. Solomon, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived, at his best, after all of his hard labor, after, after working his hardest, after working the longest day possible, he could not clothe himself as beautifully as God clothed the flowers in the fields. So, so what do flowers in Solomon have to do with worry? Right? What do flowers in Solomon have? Maybe a better question to ask ourselves would be this. Why don't we ask this? Why do we think that the things that we create are more beautiful than what God sustains. Like, you know how many times I've driven by a, a field full of flowers and been like, wow, those are pretty. And I see somebody in a brand new car and I'm like, dang, I want one. Why do we think that the things that, that man creates is more beautiful than what God sustains? Why are we so bent that way? Like when, I, when I'm reading this text this week and as I'm studying through it, I, I wrestle with this piece about Solomon, as I'm thinking about who Solomon was. Solomon was one of the wealthiest men who'd ever lived. Hard worker. He built this kingdom, built castles, built cities. Had more wives than anybody else ever have had. I don't know why he would want to do that. My wife would tell you it's hard enough just to deal with me. So I don't know why you'd want to have multiple wives or multiple husbands. That just seems to really muddy the whole thing up. In today's culture, like Solomon would have everything, right? He could write a check for anything in the next moment. He had more gold in his bank account than any other person. He had bigger, finer houses, faster cars, more garages full of them. He had the finest clothing you could possibly purchase. Like for him to go down to the store and, and drop a couple hundred dollars on a pair of jeans would have been nothing. It would have been nothing for him. What a piece of cake. Why do we think that the things that we create are more beautiful than what God sustains? I think what Jesus wants us to see here is that our worry is directly linked like, to our ability to toil and spin. I want you to think about this. In other words, like, like we struggle with worrying because everything in our physical existence is connected to our ability to work and to produce. You think about your daily life. You get up to some extent. You, you go to work, whether you stay at home or whether you go to a job or somewhere else or whatever it is that you do, we get up and we work. And whether you get up at 7 a.m., 5 a.m., or 11 a.m., it doesn't matter. You get up and we work, and we work to produce. There's always something flowing out of our lives and the effort that we put in. It's all tangible. Like, I need to get that paycheck at the end of the week so I can come home and support my seven children in my home, right? Everybody else here can tell some of the same stories. 
get up, we work, and we produce. We work to earn, we work to produce, therefore it's really easy for us to believe that our, our provision is dependent and secure in our ability to work and to earn and produce. I mean, think with me for a minute on this. You wake up in the morning, what's some of the first things on your mind? What is it that dominates your conversations and your thinking throughout the day? We work to earn and we work to produce, therefore it's too easy for us to believe that our provision is dependent and secure in our ability to work more, to earn more, and to produce more. When we cannot work enough, when we cannot work enough to earn enough or produce enough, what do we do? We worry. We worry. We worry because we believe a false gospel. We believe a false gospel which says we can find security in depending upon ourselves, security in depending on our efforts, security in depending on our productivity. Listen, if Solomon were standing here right now, if he could preach this message to us, I believe he would preach the entire book of Ecclesiastes to us. He was the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. And in that book, Solomon basically said, I've had every beautiful thing you could have. I've had more beautiful wives than anyone, more beautiful cities than anyone, more beautiful clothes than anyone, more beautiful gold in my bank account than anybody else. More, But the pursuit of those beautiful things is like chasing the wind. Ever try chasing the wind? Can't. It's foolish. It's like chasing the wind and it pales in comparison with the beauty of chasing God. It pales in comparison. And I spent a good portion of my life chasing women, chasing the next high, chasing the next physical possession I could buy. I spent a good portion of my life doing that. I know that it got me nothing. Pursuit of those things is like chasing the wind and it pales in comparison with chasing the beauty of God Himself. Because only He alone can sustain our lives. We worry because we value the beauty that we can work to produce more than the beauty that God produces and sustains. One of my phone calls this week was with one of our coaches through A29 as he's coaching me on church planting. We're talking about what it means to become a sustainable church, right? Sounds like security. Think about that, sustainability and security. And that conversation is hard for me to have because there's a lot of my, like me personally, that's engaged with church planting, right? Like all the statements that you see, I'm heavily engaged with writing those statements, right? Our, 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 uh, um, all of our, you know, like our PowerPoints, like getting ourselves here, leadership, all those things, coaching people, discipling people. Like I'm really personally engaged with it. Like you could easily say that like my life as a pastor is really sold out for the mission of who we are as a church plan. I, I like eat, sleep, breathe that all day long, right? And so when somebody comes to me and is like, hey, we should really talk about what it looks like for your church to get to a place of sustainability, internal sustainability, where the viability of its existence in a community so that gospel ministry can be done, so the hearts can be changed, so that lives can be saved. Um, we need to talk about that. And we need, to, we need to set some goals for you guys to get to. 
And I, I agree. I'm down with that. I get it. Because, like, for our family with seven kids, we have to plan. And, like, God, God's not the kind of God who didn't plan things. I mean, you, you look at the world around us, and he didn't just create things around us and be like, oh, you know what, I think I'm going to do this today. And that's not who God is. God's a very organized God, very detail-oriented God. Put everything into effect, even had a plan for your salvation. And I begin to think about, you know, if God went so far as to have a plan for the salvation of people who acted like his enemies and, and we've lived as sinful, um, antagonistic people towards God, right? If that's the way God acts towards his enemies, then, gosh, I should probably plan really well for the people I love, you know, right? Like my, my wife and my children. So like budgeting, um, deciding what time we're going to get out of bed and, and go to work, deciding to work and all those things, right? We're, we're planning. We're working out a plan, plans of savings, and so on and so forth. These are all good things. But then when it comes to our church, I, I get really afraid. I get really afraid to talk about money. I get really afraid of saying, hey, we have an $82,000 budget, and we, we, have to, we have to internally support that at some point. Otherwise, like, I don't want to be harsh. It's not like we cease to exist, but that's a very real threat, isn't it? I mean, that's what I wrestle with. That's my worry. And it's not just because I'm like personally tied to it, but I also buy into the mission I buy into that mission a ton. Like our, like our family is invested in that. And I love that about all of you guys sitting here. Like I'm looking out and I'm seeing faces and there are many of you that are here and you're heavily invested in seeing a church planted where people come to Jesus. So when somebody starts talking to me about sustainability and security, I begin to get worried because I begin to think, oh, things aren't as stable as I wish they were. We're not as secure as I hoped we'd be. So man, I wrestle with this worry piece, not just in my home with my family, but I wrestle with it here too. But if Solomon were sitting here, he would simply say, hey guys, what you worry about reveals the reason for your worry, which gives you an opportunity to stop worrying. Like even the wealthiest people among us, and there's nobody here that makes $200,000 a year in this congregation. I know where we are as a church. We're a pretty young, pretty poor church. Pretty ragged around the edges, right? But even the wealthiest people among us in this room tonight <coughs> instinctively knows that regardless of how much you work, there is no security and no sustainability in money. There's no security and sustainability in clothing, the stockpiles of food, or any other physical possession or piece of material wealth that we can accumulate. Accumulate it all and you'll still wake up tomorrow and worry about what's going to happen the next day and the next moment. Life is short. Like life is short and our ability to work, to earn, and to produce our physical needs is limited at best, right? Limited at best, not just to our ability, but also to our time here on earth. Our time here on earth is like a whisper of wind. Gone. But when compared to the life of a flower, it's like an eternity. You think about the life of a flower or life of a piece of grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. Jesus even says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? It's not just that we worry because we believe we can work, earn, and produce and then when we fail to hit that mark, we fall into more worry. It's also, it's also that we struggle to believe that God is enough. 
We struggle to remember that even the tiniest shred of our faith, our belief in God, placed in the all-powerful nature of God, we struggle to believe that that's actually enough to move mountains. Listen, not because our faith is so great and grand and so good and you can actually plop it up on TV with all the other health, wealth, and prosperity teachers, but because the God that we believe in is big enough. We struggle to believe that he is, but the reality is that even though we struggle to believe that he's big enough, it doesn't change the fact that he is big enough. He is enough. There's, there's, there's no place that you or I can find a sense of sustainability or security outside of the arms of our Savior Jesus. He's it. He's it. We oftentimes depend on ourselves. We find security and sustainability in ourselves because we trust in ourselves. And as we do that, then we simultaneously mistrust in the all-powerful nature of our God in heaven. What we worry about reveals the reason for our worry, which gives us the opportunity to stop worrying. So how do you stop worrying then, right? How do you stop worrying? Like we worry about things that are far out of our control and we worry about things that we have absolutely zero power over, but how do we stop the madness? How do you stop the cycle of worrying over things that you cannot control and worrying over things that you have no power to sustain, which then creates more worry? How do you break that? Jesus has been instructing us not to worry. And all along, he's, he's been teaching us that we have no control. We have no power. So in verse 31, he says, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. See, our, our common issue is that we either reduce life to physical and financial needs, or, or we enlarge our physical and financial needs to the extent that then everything we live for becomes physical and financial needs. Jesus addresses this tendency to make everything about our physical existence when he says, do not be anxious saying. You circle that word in the text. Do not be anxious saying. In other words, do not worry in your conversations. Do not worry in your conversations. Think about your conversations for a moment. How often do your conversations revolve around the need for more money or the need for more things that, that money can buy like food, drink, or clothing? Jesus points out that the things that we often worry about are the same things that dominate the conversation of unbelievers. He says, it's just, the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The people that Jesus was talking to would typically believe that if you were a Gentile, then you were an unbeliever. His main point is that sometimes we don't act any different than those who call themselves unbelievers. At this point of his message, Jesus is basically saying, when your conversation is dominated by worry, then you're acting no different than that of the unbelieving world around you. It's not enough to know the truth in regards to what we worry about, how we worry and why we worry about financial security and sustainability. Jesus does say in another place of Scripture that you should know the truth and the truth will set you free, right? You know the Scriptures a bit, you would know that. 
He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free from what enslaves you. But Jesus isn't talking about mere head knowledge alone. Like, we get all this stuff in our minds, and that's not going to save you. He's not concerned about mere head knowledge. He's talking about heart knowledge that leads to repentance and belief. Like we must remember that what we believe flows from the reservoir of our hearts out through the words of our mouths and then makes up the conversations that we have. Ask yourself this question. Do you really believe that God knows what you need? If you know that God knows the intimate details of your life, then you will be set free to believe that he will provide your every need. If you believe that through the cross of Christ, you have been set free from your sin of attempting to control what you cannot control and rule over things which you have no power to rule over, then you will be set free to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Look at this in the text. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? And just take it apart. Seek means to chase, to pursue, to run after, to hunt, to look for, to set your eye upon, to be consumed with. This is what the word seek means. It means to go looking after, to chase after it with gusto, with all of your energy, to put all of your resources into finding that which you are looking for. Seek first, chase after, look for, run after, hunt it down and grab a hold of it. First, not second, not third, but oftentimes for us, so-called Christians, many times, who do we seek first? Me, not Jesus. What Jesus is saying is, man, seek me first. If you're going to seek the kingdom first, then who's the king of the kingdom? You or God? Who is it? See, Jesus is, is the king of the kingdom. If we're, to, if we're to, to seek the kingdom of God, then we are to seek Christ. We're to chase after Christ. We're to hunt down Christ and to be in his presence. He is to be our all in all. We are to belong to him and he is to belong to us as we sing. We come together as a church family and we sing songs of worship that are so theologically rich and deep at times. But sometimes I wonder, do we stop long enough to understand what we are singing? Seek first, not second, not third. Jesus isn't just a neat little categorical box that you get to close up just because you came to church on Sunday or because you go to a gospel community on Tuesday. And God is meant to be the object of your affection. Why? Why? Because the Scriptures make it clear to us and the Gospel makes it clear to us that we are the objects of His love. He's lavished His love upon us in Christ. So then if we say we are believers, then we are to seek first the kingdom. And to seek the kingdom means to seek Christ because he's the king of the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Righteousness is embodied in the person of Christ. You and I were always seeking after righteousness, that rightness or trying to be made right. We're actually trying to win the fight and always be right. That's most of us. And trying to prove how we are good enough. And the reality is, as we read the scriptures, we find that we're not good enough. Only Christ is good enough. We get our righteousness from him. He, again, gives us that righteousness, that rightness. We are enabled to come into God's presence as unholy beings who are being made holy by Christ and the work of the cross. 
In this passage, what Jesus is don't doing is he's, he's showing us our helplessness. All throughout it, he's showing us our sinfulness. He's showing us our tendency towards self-sufficiency. He's showing us how our desires for financial security and sustainability will never, ever, ever be satisfied by our efforts. Ever. As he peels back like the layers of our self-sufficient fig leaves and our hopeless attempts at creating false security, he offers us the gospel offers us the gospel, which is like a fresh drink of water to a thirsty person. He offers us the, 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 the message of the gospel, which is like a, a cheeseburger and fries to a hungry man. He offers us the message of the gospel, which is like a set of clothing to a naked person who is ashamed and exposed. He offers us the gospel message by instructing us to seek First, the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom of God is embodied in the person of Christ. Seek Him. Chase after Him. Pursue Him. Jesus is the fresh drink of water that our parched lives are desperately in need of. He's the meal for starving and deprived people. He's the clothing that covers the shame of our failures and our shortcomings. Listen, if we sit around anxiously worrying about what tomorrow may bring, then we inevitably worry about more worry. And we then perpetually thirst and hunger and seek and chase after everything we can see, taste, touch, and smell that is in this world rather rather than seeking Christ. Every moment and every second of the day when we are tempted to worry is yet another opportunity to find our satisfaction, our fulfillment, our covering, our value our provision, our security, and our sustenance in Christ alone. Are you seeking the presence of Jesus? Are you surrendering your life to Christ's control? Have you trusted in the power of Jesus to provide everything that you need? Have you found Jesus to be of such infinite worth to you that you spend your days seeking hard after Him? What we worry about reveals the reasons for our worry which gives us the opportunity to stop worrying. There is a part of me, I, I already told you where I'm wrestling with my worry, right? I, just, that's, this, I got my worries. There's a part of me that says that even if, even if this church, the way that we are, ceased to exist right now when we walk out of here, like that, that's not the end goal. Like the end goal is not to see a church planted here. The end goal is to see people follow Jesus with their entire lives, be so affected with the gospel that they would spend the rest of their lives seeking hard after Jesus. And that we would, that we would even lay aside all of our excuses like, oh, you know, that one church hurt me. Oh, you know, that one guy said this. Oh, well, the pastor smelled funny tonight, whatever it may be. Like we got, oh, we got all of our excuses, all of our reasons, right? Like just lay all that aside for a minute. My biggest and greatest prayer is you, as you look at what is it that you worry about, as you look at uh, the reasons that you worry, and as you think about how to stop worrying about the things you worry about and why you worry about them, that you would just catch a great big picture of Jesus. Going back to the very beginning of the message. I get to be that guy that just stands in front of you and says, you know what, I don't understand all the things you worry about. I know my world. I know some of you guys' worlds. And I get it, we're going to walk out of here. We're going to go back to the, to the everyday moments of our lives. And I think the biggest prayer that I have is not necessarily that we would all stop worrying, although I do pray that. 
My biggest prayer is that Jesus would be enough for you. That Jesus would be enough for you. That when you wake up in the morning, that the first thoughts that were on your mind, even if they were evil, sinful thoughts, that you would just see as an opportunity to once again think upon the person who is Christ. Because in Him, in Him, we have everything we need. No reason to worry. Let me pray for us as our music team comes forward. Father, thank you for our time together in the Scriptures tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would take um, this passage of Scripture and take some of the things that I've said and just apply it to all of our hearts and our lives. Lord, help us to see you as bigger than any mountain that we could face. As bigger than any financial hardship or any physical need that we could ever have. I pray, God, that in those deep and dark moments of need where we are crying out before you and saying, God, I don't know what's going to happen next. Father, I pray that you would remind us that we, we know nothing about the next 18 inches of our lives, but you do. You know the very numbers of the hairs on our heads. So help us to trust in you. That's really what this message is about. Help us to seek you. Help us to seek you trusting you knowing that you are a good father who loves to give to his kids. And if we call you our father, then we are your kids. We're trusting in you and trusting in Christ that we are your kids. And so we can trust you more. I pray that for our entire church family. I know there are a ton of needs here. And so I pray that there would even just be a gentleness in some of the hard and harsh things that I've said, God, that you would soften those edges and that you would encourage and challenge. But God, most of all, bring us to a place of real deep dependence upon you. Help us to remember that that which you sustain is far more beautiful than anything you or I, any person can create. In Jesus' name, amen. And we're going to close and worship invite you guys to stand with us. There'll be a few near the front to serve you communion. And you don't have to be a member of the church to engage in communion with us. But one thing you do have to be is you've got to be a Christian. So you have to be able to reach that place where you say, I trust in Christ as my Savior. Because as you come and take communion, what we're doing this for is to remember. We're remembering Christ. We're remembering his broken body on a cross and his shed blood on that cross. We're remembering that. As we're remembering that, we're remembering his deep love for us. And if you're here, you're not a believer, you're just checking things out, it's cool. Like, we're glad you're here. This moment by, might be that moment where you say, you know what, right now I believe in him. I get it. I don't, I don't understand all of it, but there's enough for me to say I, I'm trusting in Jesus to save me because I'm a wreck and I'm a mess and I need him to save me and I can't save myself. That could be that moment for you. That's a moment of salvation. You come and you can take communion with us. Otherwise, as you come, please remember, those things that you worry about reveal why you worry, which gives you an opportunity to stop worrying and place your trust in Christ as you seek Him. Thanks for letting me preach tonight. Love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.